Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's something that Americans spend 60 billion hours a year doing that in many countries people hardly spend any time on at all. An average American family that earns about $55,000 a year spends 30 hours a year doing it. In other places, that family might spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes. So what could this time-consuming thing possibly be? The answer is not what you'd hope. So beach excursions, cookouts, hikes, none of that. It's filing our taxes. And since fixing the tax system is high on Congress's agenda at the moment, you might want to know how changing the system could help you. Of course, keep in mind, Congress has taken a stab at this a couple times before. Over the course of this century, our tax system has been modified dozens of times and in hundreds of ways. Yet most of those changes didn't improve the system. They made it more like Washington itself, complicated, unfair, cluttered with gobbledygook and loopholes designed for those with the power and influence to hire high-priced legal and tax advisors. That was President Ronald Reagan in 1985 explaining why he wanted to reform the tax code. And he did. But that was a while ago. And the system is now in need of another repair job. T.R. Reid has looked around the world to see what we can learn from other countries and how they pay their taxes. He's the author of the book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. TR, thanks for your time. Hi, Kara. Great to be here. I love Innovation Hub. Oh, thank you very much. Um, So when I read in your book um, that Americans spend, on average, as I said, about 30 hours preparing their taxes, and that's obviously not for people who have super complicated taxes, that was shocking to me. And it was especially sad to juxtapose it with places where people are spending 30 minutes doing their taxes. Why do we spend so much time? And then, like, why do other people get to spend so little time doing their taxes? It's outrageous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Americans spend $10 billion a year on tax preparation, people like H&R Block. We spend Mm -hmm. another $2 billion on tax software, and it still takes hours to fill that thing out. And guess what? As you said, you can walk down the street in London, Tokyo, Paris, Lima. There's no H&R Block because other countries don't need this. They've made paying taxes easy. So how is it possible? Okay, so explain to me how a 30-minute, since we normally spend 30 hours, what is a 30-minute, you know, or 15-minute um, getting your taxes prepared? Like, how do you possibly get together all the forms for, like, the money that you've made and the, the mortgage and how many kids you have? And, like, how do you get that all together in just 15 or 30 minutes? In other countries, you don't do that because the government does it for you. You Kara, I was in Amsterdam last March 31st. April 1st is tax day in the Netherlands. I was with this mid-level manager. He makes about $200,000 a year, two kids in private schools, two homes Mm -hmm. with mortgages. This guy would have to fill out seven forms in the United States, some of them six Mm -hmm. pages long. 
And I said, hey, Michael, your taxes are due tomorrow. What, what are you going to do? And he said, yeah, yeah, thanks for reminding me. He sets aside 15 minutes a year to pay his federal and oh state gosh. taxes. And here's what he does. He pops a beer, he goes online, and the government <laughs> knows all the numbers and has filled out the form for him. And he says to me, if the numbers look right, I click OK and I'm done in five minutes. But then he says, he says, you know, I think I'm what you Yanks might call a Republican. He says, I don't trust government to get things right. So, you know, sometimes I check the numbers. He says, you know, now he's getting really mad. He says, you know, you start checking the numbers. It can take almost half an hour just to pay your taxes. How can they do that? So in many countries, the government fills out the form for you. In Japan, you got a postcard. It says, we think you earned this much. We withheld this much. We'll put the refund in your bank account on April 1st. You're done. Does the U.S. government know that stuff about? I mean, it seems like the government knows a lot. I assume the government knows, like, how many kids we have, I guess, how much money. I mean, we make. I mean, our, our employer, I assume, tells them. So does our government have all the makings to do that kind of tax return for us? Yes, Yes, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, could do this for about 75 or 80 percent of American families. They know all the numbers. I don't know. I bet some people listening have gotten this letter from the IRS. It's called a CP2000 form. They send out millions of them every year, and it's not an audit. It's a correction. So you you file your taxes, and you get a CP2000, and that's the one that says, On line 48Q, you entered $4,314, and it should have been $4,724. And I'm thinking, well, if they they knew that already, why did I spend hours (laughs) putting the right right number on the wrong line? You know, they could do this. And guess what, Kara? This is introduced in Congress all the time. It's called pre-filled forms. And there are several members from both parties who advocate for the government to do this for us. And guess what? H&R Block lobbies against it. Intuit, the maker of TurboTax, they lobby against this. But doesn't it feel to you like we are in a moment right now that of populism, right? People have talked about that on the right, on the left, that we're in this sort of that the politics are different in part because there's this real populism. Call it the Tea Party, call it Occupy, call it Bernie Sanders, call it Donald Trump, whatever. Is this a moment where we can say, you know, I don't really care that tax software companies are lobbying for something else. This would be good for a lot of people, and we're in a moment of populism. Forget it. We're just going to make taxes way easier and free people's time up for work or play or whatever. I think this is the time. Here, here's what's happened in America. We started the, the federal income tax in 1913, and it was incredibly popular then. This is the tax we all hate now, right? When it started, it was only paid by the Morgans and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. So everybody else really liked it. And uh, and then, you know, lobbyists came in and started adding exemptions and giveaways and credits. And it got very complicated. So in 1922, Congress wrote a pretty straightforward tax code. By 1954, it was so loaded with exemptions and credits that President Eisenhower demanded that Congress start over. That's the Internal Revenue Code of 1954. You Mm. just played Ronald Reagan complaining about how complex the tax code was. That led to the Tax Reform Act of 1986. All economists agree that was the best one ever. They got rid of all sorts of exemptions and lowered the rates, brought in more money with much lower Mm. rates. So if you look at that 22 to 54 to 86, every 32 years... The thing is such a monster, you have to throw it out and start over. Well, guess what, Kara? 
the 32 years is up in 2018. So the time mm. has come. And as mm. a matter of fact, in Congress, there's nobody in either party who would defend the current tax code. I think there's a lot of desire there to, uh, to get things fixed. And, and does, is that going to mean doing things that initially may seem unpalatable, getting rid of mortgage deductions or getting rid of tax credits per child, right? I mean, are we going to have to do some things that individual people are going to grumble about, but in the end are going to be good? I think so. I think the answer to that is yes. The way to get things simpler and get the rates down is get rid of all these giveaways and exemptions. Currently in our tax code, you get a tax break for taking a night school course, paying your property tax, growing sugarcane, moving to a new city <laughs> for a job, replanting a forest, destroying old farm equipment, commuting to work by bicycle, but only for a bike that is regularly used for a substantial portion of travel. You get a tax break of $7,500 if you buy a $138,000 hybrid BMW sports car. So a lot of them are ridiculous. <laughs> That's going to be my next car. Exactly. <laughs> and the, gov the U.S. government will help you out when you buy that German hybrid car. So uh, a lot of them are ridiculous. And I think we had to, if we got rid of all of them, then we could get the rates way down. The form would be much simpler. We could bring in the same tax with much lower rates. And when rates are lower, then it's not in your interest to hire a lawyer and accountant to figure out a way to get out of it. Just pay the taxes simpler and cheaper. So this is what we could do. This is pretty much what they did in 1986. In 1986, the, the, when they started, the top marginal tax rate was 70%. They reduced it to 28%. The top rate was 28%. Hmm. And they brought in right. more revenue because they got rid of so many loopholes and exemptions. And then, of course, the lobbyists came in one by one, and it stuck them back in the code. When you have all those giveaways in the tax code, then you got to raise the rates to raise the money. Currently, the top is 43%. We should do this again. We should get rid of all of them, including the popular ones. The mortgage interest deduction doesn't serve its purpose. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with T.R. Reid, author of the book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. What was your favorite tax system that you looked at as you, you know, sort of looked around the world here at these different systems? One of the things I really liked, I only saw it in one country in Slovakia, they had to raise their taxes after the global recession in 2009. They had to raise taxes. It was unpopular. So to sell this, the parliament passed a law that members of parliament and members of the cabinet have to pay 5% more than anybody else at their income level. So do you <laughs> like that one? I can see why one? that would be popular. Yeah, yeah I, I and the contrast is that. our Congress has given members of Congress all sorts of special breaks that nobody else gets. Hmm. But I, I really like that one. And so in Slovakia, when they raise taxes, they're hurting themselves more than anybody else. So I, I thought that was a good rule. Unfortunately, Kara, yeah. I only saw it in one country. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't hold our breath for it uh, here. Um, <laughs> Was there a tax idea that seemed smart somewhere around the world, but just totally was a disaster? Like, it seemed yes. like a great idea, and it just didn't work out. Yeah, there's several like that. You know, the Steve Forbes flat tax, where everybody pays 18%. Sure. Everybody pays some tax. That. And six of the Republicans running last year uh, supported that plan. Well, okay. it turns out 12 countries that had just gotten out of the Soviet Union when the wall, the Berlin Wall fell— 
they they tried it and it works for a few years in those circumstances. If you're a so this is like everybody you choose your amount and it's like everybody pays eighteen percent or everybody 18, pays twenty percent. Twenty one percent in Estonia, fifteen percent in Hungary. All right. In a country where everybody is equally poor, everybody makes about the same amount of money, there's no investment capital, labor rates are way low. Uh, it really worked. When they did these, these flat taxes, investors in Germany and Scandinavia poured in and invested in their economies. And for eight or nine years, the, these systems really worked. And then when they hit the Great Recession in 2008, it turned out they just couldn't bring in enough money. The problem with the flat taxes, you can't set it high enough to bring in the revenue you need, but low enough for average working families to pay. And, and so it just doesn't bring in enough money. And, and most countries that tried the flat tax have given up on it. A few hmm. make up for it with other taxes. So Hungary has kept its 15% flat income tax rate. But guess what? To offset it, they have the highest sales tax in the world, 27% on everything wow. you buy. Wow. That's the cost of a flat tax. So I don't think that mm. one worked. Um, right. Liberals really like the carbon tax. You know, you tax carbon emissions, yeah. you fight global yes. warming and bring in revenue at I've the same time. I've heard many economists on both the right and the left say they think a carbon tax is a good idea. Yeah, and it turns out politically to be hard to do. Uh, Australia passed the world model carbon tax it lasted two years. Everybody hated it. The government that put it into effect lost the next election and the, the huh. other party took it away. And the reason was it raised everybody's electric bill. Uh, it, it basically was a tax on electric power. And the power companies very thoughtfully in Australia put a little notice on the bill saying, sorry, yeah. your bill went up. It's because <laughs> of that rotten tax we have to pay now. And right, so right, it lasted two right. years. So carbon tax, great idea on paper. Nobody seems to like it in concrete. One of the big arguments in the country has been, um, do rich people pay their fair share of taxes? So if you look, the top 3% of Americans pay more than half of the taxes. It seems like a lot. I wonder, is it? Because you've got people who say, oh, wow, rich people pay way more than they should in taxes. And other people who say rich people don't pay nearly what they should in taxes. So what do you think? I think the important question to ask is not how much they paid in tax, but how much they had left after they paid. And by that measure, uh, many rich people are really making out big time in, a, in, a, in the American tax code because they have clout in Congress. For example, you remember Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012 yes. and was required mm -hmm. to release one of his tax returns. Mitt and Ann Romney made $21.6 million a year. That's 500 times the median income in the United States. And they paid tax at a rate of 13.6%. That's less than a family of four at $70,000. And it wasn't illegal. That's the scandal. It was legal right. because the richest Americans do get all sorts of breaks that other people don't get. Hmm. Um, you know, Americans, this may be in our own heads, but... Um, I think, think that we dislike taxes more than a lot of other um, countries. Obviously, we've got a creation story uh, uh, tied yes. to taxes. Do you think Americans do hate paying taxes more than other countries? Like, do we have a different attitude about this than other countries? Yeah, it's interesting, too, because, you know, relative to other rich countries, we pay less. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, they measure total tax burden. They take all the taxes in the country 
as a percentage of GDP. That's called total tax burden. On that measure, America is way low. We rate 33rd of the 35 richest countries. We pay less income wow. tax, hmm. less Social Security tax, less gas tax, liquor tax, tobacco tax, sales tax. Um, but we complain more. And I think that's, that's partly because Americans just don't like government that much. In other mm -hmm. rich democracies, people see government as kind of an aid, a helper, a neighbor. Right, right, and we've right. always resented government. And then I think another thing is what we were talking about earlier, Kara. We've just made it so hard to pay. Uh, yeah. In fact, the IRS— It's painful. It, it's painful to take the money out of your wallet. And, well, and that's painful. But, I mean, just filling out the form. Why should it yeah, be right. difficult to fill? I mean, I'm going to give you my money anyway. At least make it easy. And, right. um, you know, in a, the IRS advises its employees not to tell people where they work. Whereas in other countries, the IRS, the Revenue Service, they have blazers with a patch. They have baseball caps, T-shirts. Mm -hmm. They have mascots. Mm -hmm. They have marching bands, songs. <laughs> I mean, they're proud. They're proud. What? In what? Chile, um, the IRS in Chile <laughs> has, has a mascot. He's a little furry chinchilla. His name is Evo. And Evo goes around to schools and malls and parks and sings a song about how great taxes are. Son bacanes los impuestos. These taxes, they're awesome. They build schools. They build roads. So is the solution in your mind the fact that, you know, obviously we, we pay less, but we complain more. Does that go back then to the, you know, uh, Mitt Romney conversation we were having about basically at the end of the day, the like very rich people have got to pay more money? Yeah, I think the the perceived unfairness of it, the fact that Mitt Romney paid a lower rate of tax than I did, uh, making 200 times as much, of course that makes you hate the system. Uh, right. You shouldn't hate taxes. Taxes pay for stuff that we all want. You know, I was just debating in Washington one of these anti-tax advocates, and I said to him, did you build your own road from home to the studio? No, he came mm -hmm. down the government street. He just doesn't want to have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't have to pay taxes, but you can hate our rotten system that makes it so difficult to pay. And one of the reasons it's more popular, or at least more accepted, nobody likes paying taxes, but at least they accept in other countries, is because they just don't put the burden on people. We could do this. As I said, the government could fill out your tax form for you. It would take 15 minutes to file. April 15th would be just another sunny spring day. <laughs> T.R. Reed is author of the book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. T.R., thank you very much. Great to be on your air. Thank you. By the way, Reed told me he has been invited to talk to folks in the House of Representatives who help write our tax policy. So we will see what comes of that. If you missed part of this conversation and you want to hear the whole thing, or if you want to subscribe to our podcast so you get new episodes of the show every week, you can find Innovation Hub on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Gonna pay for their wars if we all get together and cut their phones. If you know the name Priscilla Chan, you're going to know where I'm going here. If you don't, stick with me. Priscilla Chan was born in 1985, the oldest of three children. Her family did not have a lot of money. Her parents had gotten out of Vietnam as refugees. But she became the valedictorian of her suburban Massachusetts high school. And she went to Harvard, where she met a classmate that she later married. That guy's name 
was Mark Zuckerberg. The path that Chan has traveled is obviously incredibly unusual. She and her husband are now among the richest people in the world. But the choices that she makes, her priorities, could shape many of our lives. David Callahan writes about the super rich and the billions that they're giving away in The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. He's also the editor of the website Inside Philanthropy. David, thanks for your time. Great to be here. So uh, when Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg announced they're giving away uh, about 99% of their money, there was actually a fair amount of criticism um, and there was backlash. Explain why you think that happened, because as they said, this is a quote, um, they wanted to advance human potential and promote equality, which I think in general is a goal that, uh, you know, most people can get on board with. That depends what your politics are, right? Not everybody's on board with the Koch brothers' agenda, Mm -hmm. which has included, uh, you know, drastically reducing the size of government, cutting taxes, cutting entitlement spending, cutting environmental rules. If you're on the right, you're not on the agenda uh, on the same page as George Soros, who's Mm -hmm. given hundreds of millions of dollars to advance LGBT rights or to advance civil liberties, Mm -hmm. uh, criminal justice reform. And so uh, one of my concerns is that so often this philanthropy is critiqued uh, through an ideological lens. You know, you, depending upon your politics, you complain about the donors on the other side, mm-hmm. you know, what I call a kind of a la carte alarmism, right? <laughs> and, right. If, uh, if, if you're supporting your cause, it's all fine. Keep yeah, going. You're, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, it's great. Right? What's, what's not to like? Right, if, right. if you believe in, if you're worried about climate change, it's great that Mike Bloomberg is trying to shut down coal fired power plants. You know, if you work for a coal fired power plant, you're probably not so excited right. that a Manhattan billionaire is giving lots of money right. for that. The point I'm in my book is that all of this influence, uh, which is really expanding at a pretty rapid clip uh, by these billionaire donors, uh, exists in some pretty deep tension with the idea of civic equality and that we as citizens should all have an equal say in in how our society runs and what priorities are set. You you think of voters ideally having most influence over where our society goes. I see this philanthropic money often as another form of money in politics. You know, we've all heard about political campaign contributions. We know about the money spent on lobbying. Well, guess what? If you spend a lot of, give a lot of money, tax-deductible gifts, by the way, to think tanks and, and advocacy organizations and litigation groups, that's often more effective than giving money to politicians in terms of determining how government operates, what priorities are set, what policies are enacted, and that affects people's lives in a big way. And you said that you'd like to see um, this money spent in sort of a less political, more traditional way. So like supporting the arts or hospitals or underwriting basic scientific research. Um, And I know like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, does a lot with vaccines. Uh, They try to eradicate malaria all over the world. It sounds like that is a way of spending rich people's money uh, that you support. I think that the Gates Foundation has been most impressive and most effective when it comes to saving the lives of, of uh, children in the in the developing world through their vaccination work. I mean, that's been heroic work. In contrast, I think a lot of their giving for K-12 education has been quite controversial and has produced some pretty spectacular missteps in a lot of public concern, like they're spending over giving over $200 million to help usher in the Common Core 
which has generated a lot of controversy. A lot of people mm-hmm. have viewed that as a kind of backdoor effort to federalize sort of education policy. Others see it as sort of uh, putting forth a bunch of ideas that aren't proven. It's had a lot of mixed reviews. They kind of uh, really uh, used their philanthropic muscle to to make that happen in a dramatic way. That's to me. That's way too much power for a private couple to have in, in an area K twelve education, which many of us think of as the most democratic of, of all public spheres. So uh, you talk about uh, the current Gilded Age in your book. Let's go back for a second to the last Gilded Age. How did people respond when, like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies? who, I mean, once upon a time, uh, but even still now, um, had tons of money to give away. And they said, I want this public program. I want this building to be mine. How did people at that time respond to that? Well, it was interesting. There was tremendous alarm when John D. Rockefeller came forth to set up a, a foundation. By that, this was about 1911. By that time, He had already given away millions and millions of dollars. He was also one of the most notorious kind of robber baron figures of his time. And people didn't like the idea of him having a foundation uh, that used tax-deductible dollars to 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 express his preferences over over you know big ideas and and try to advance different kinds of solutions they didn't like it so much that that effort was blocked in the US Congress it was seen as an anti-democratic plot mm. the Rockefeller Foundation was ultimately chartered in New York state uh interestingly though you know flash forward 100 years and for a while back in the 1990s when this big new philanthropy was just starting to emerge People were pretty cheerful about it. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm. There wasn't a lot of pushback. And I think lately there's been more kind of concern and pushback to this big philanthropy by these billionaire donors as part of a broader concern people have that the wealthy have too much power Mm -hmm. in society. I mean, think about the context here. We live in an age of record inequality. Polls show Americans already believe the wealthy have, have too much power, that the voices of ordinary people aren't being heard. Uh, there's a lot of distrust of elites, as we you know, saw in the last election. Mm-hmm. We live in a populist time. Mm-hmm. And into this situation are coming all these big-time new philanthropists like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chen w- with even more money than Rockefeller had. Right, <laughs> right, right. right, right. And, and there's more of them. I mean, the big difference right. between now and 100 years ago is there's just many, many more rich people. Mm. There's many more rich people in America than there was 30 years ago. You know, when the Forbes 400 first came out in 19. 19- 82, it only had 13 billionaires. Now there's over 500 billionaires Mm, in America, and quite a few of them are interested in philanthropy, and they're starting to ramp up their giving and doing so in a big way, and a lot of them are focusing on public policy as a leverage point to move their agenda. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with David Callahan, author of The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. Uh, So you talked about the 1990s as being like the beginning of this new kind of philanthropy. Why? What happened in the 1990s that all of a sudden changed things? Well, when I first started paying attention to philanthropy back in the mid-1990s, big legacy institutions really dominated the field. Uh, You know, the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, places set up by donors long gone. Things really start to change when Ted Turner steps forward uh, with that billion-dollar gift to the United Nations. I remember that. I remember that. 
Wasn't it that we were not paying our dues to the United Nations or something? Uh, yeah. It was like, I'm going to fill in here? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, his money, by the way, did not go to the United Nations directly. It went to a foundation that supports the United Nations work. So Ted Turner steps forward that big gift. And along the way, he chastises his fellow billionaires saying, come on, guys, like, get, get a move on it, right? Uh, not long after... Uh, Bill Gates makes his huge gift to really scale up the the Gates Foundation. Other philanthropists, Pierre Omidyar, who started eBay, Jeff Skull, a bunch of these people, uh, Michael Dell, Steve Case, uh, a number of these new tech uh, billionaire types start to create their foundations. And then in recent years, we've seen things just ramp up even more dramatically. A lot of these hedge fund people, the big Wall Street money, that's emerged in the last 20 years through hedge funds. A lot of that is being harnessed to philanthropy. It's not just George Soros anymore mm-hmm. as a hedge fund guy giving away a lot of money. It's a, a bunch of these people. And, I mean, for me, as somebody who writes about this field all, all the time, it's it's head spinning, right? right? Every time you turn around, right. there's another billionaire right. showing up with <laughs> some huge new initiative to conquer this or that problem. You're like, wait a minute. We're just – it's hard to keep track of these people at some point. <laughs> so I wonder how philanthropy – Um, intersects with government. Like, obviously, the government's got way more money than any single individual person. Um, But do you see big givers actually changing the way that government operates and, like, how government deploys its funds? The big picture here is that government is in decline and philanthropy is rising. And so by decline, I mean that Now and through the foreseeable future, government is going to have fewer discretionary resources to try new things, to solve problems, to be an agent of change. More and more of the money that government spends is going to go to mandatory entitlements and uh, you know, things like Social Security, Medicare, pensions at the local level, servicing uh, of huge debts, both federally and, and locally, mm-hmm. and the amount of money left over for things like uh, medical research, education, environmental protection, space exploration. That pot, uh, as a percentage, is just going to get smaller and smaller. Already, that non-defense federal discretionary spending is at the lowest level as a percentage of GDP since Eisenhower was in office. Meanwhile, if you look at the states, you know, they're all, many of them are are dealing with some really serious fiscal issues. Connecticut, Illinois, cities are going bankrupt, right? So there's a a kind of growing vacuum in terms of government's ability to be an agent of change. And philanthropy is moving into that vacuum. Often it's being pulled in by some urgent demands to sort of make up for the falling, you know, government budgets. I mean, for science research, for example, you see philanthropists who are stepping forward because, they, you know, they, they know about all these cuts that have been made to the National Science Foundation. Uh, often these university donors to public universities step forward when, when that money, you know, uh, to state universities has been falling. Uh, donors right. try to make up the difference there. But of course, with their largesse comes influence. You have talked about the fact that many of these very rich givers are indeed concerned about income inequality. How do they think about that in terms of, like, clearly, here they are having amassed so much power. How do they square the situation in which they find themselves with the reality of that, wow, this elite is just incredibly powerful at this moment? (laughs) Yeah, well, there is an irony in, in terms of the the winners in our society being concerned about the losers, 
it's true. Many of them are worried about inequality. But in my experience, they tend to see the issue rather narrowly. And they use their philanthropic gifts to try to expand equality of opportunities so more people can climb up the ladder. Uh, you know, you see that, for example, and they're backing these charter schools, you know, that a lot of these donors want to help these kids from the inner city uh, get the best possible education and go mm, to college. Yep, yep. What they don't do, most of these donors, is they don't question the overall structure of contemporary capitalism, uh, which has placed so much power in the hands of those who own capital and control corporations. Very few of them underwrite any work that kind of critiques the system systemically, mm -hmm. uh, looks for ways to really empower uh, labor so that it gets its share, fair share of the pie mm -hmm. uh, that's being created by our economy. Few of them give money to kind of progressive economic justice work. So in theory, they're concerned about inequality. In practice, it's a pretty narrow take that they have on this problem. So you've met, you know, a bunch of these people who've given their money away. After you talk to somebody like Priscilla Chan, but other people that you've talked to, has it changed your view of the way the very wealthy give away money and the impact that that's going to have really on all of us? Because if it changes the government or it changes education or it changes healthcare or science, it's going to change everything. You know, inter interestingly, I find I can relate to these big philanthropists <laughs> because uh, many of them are just they grew up in middle or upper middle class families and you know they got wildly lucky mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of their their profession or who they married uh, and now have a tremendous amount of of money and and with that money the ability to do something positive and a lot of them have a sense of real hyper agency you know one of the donors i talked to in my book said when she reads the newspaper in the morning, she feels like she can do something about the, right. the problems that she reads about. Most of us, when they, we read the newspaper, <laughs> just sort of, you know, gnash our teeth and there's nothing right. we can do. But if, right. if you have a foundation, you can do something. Right. And so, uh, I mean, I can relate to these people. Many of them are trying to do the, the best job they can. They have the best of it. intentions. But the system overall, I think, is very troubling. I mean, these are all rational actors who are trying to maximize their, mm -hmm. their influence. But by doing so, they're acting in a way that can sort of exacerbate civic inequality, which is high already with so many people already feeling like their voices don't count in this country. And I think, I hope at the very least, these philanthropists will be more mindful of that and try to be more you know, do a lot more listening, be more responsive, try to ensure that their money is is not necessarily reflecting their preferences, uh, but really is allowing other people to speak and put their voices out there in the public debate, people with, with less power uh, or from historically marginalized communities. David Callahan is the editor of the website Inside Philanthropy. He's also the author of The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. David, thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Another quick tidbit from David Callahan that showcases how things have changed when it comes to giving money away. Rich donors, and also regular Americans, now donate more money to help alleviate poverty overseas than the United States federal government. We've got a link to the Chan Zuckerberg pledge to give away their billions 
And I'll give you one guess as to where that link is. It's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. We're at a moment when dystopian science fiction stories feel like they are everywhere. George Orwell's 1984 is suddenly immensely popular again. A TV version of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale is loved by critics and it's loved by audiences. Thinking about alternative worlds is something that Cory Doctorow has been doing for decades. Doctorow is a science fiction writer and he's the author most recently of the novel Walk Away, which pushes income inequality into a future that sometimes seems pretty far out there and sometimes seems closer to reality than we might like to think. He's also a co-editor of the website Boing Boing, and he says that what science fiction offers us is basically a bunch of contingency plans. You know, ideas for what to do if the future turns out in different ways, like how to live your life in different kinds of futures, not a, not a prediction. And, you know, Arthur Clarke said, uh, if an elderly distinguished scientist tells you something is possible, they're probably right. If they tell you something is impossible, they're probably wrong. And that really does cover science fiction writers. A lot of what science fiction writers said might happen with our technology and our social relations to it did, did in fact come true. Like what? Uh, well, so Gardner Dozois said, you know, the job of a science fiction writer is to imagine the movie theater and the automobile and invent not just the drive-in, but predict the sexual revolution. Mm. And I think that by the time Gardner said that, some of us were looking at that and going, well, actually, you know, maybe the major effect of all that was that to participate in the sexual revolution, you had to carry government identity papers because you needed a driver's license. And before that, nobody in America carried papers. It was such a, it was like the thing that you used as a shorthand for totalitarian government, your papers, please. Right. right? And all of a sudden, everyone was carrying papers. Well, now we live in the society where like the management and tracking of your identity has become one of the central motifs of, of governance. And maybe that's the thing that that happened. And you see inklings of it around the edges. So William Gibson, you know, didn't know a lot about computers when he wrote Neuromancer in 1984, but he had become a keen observer of how corporations and the state were merging to create systems of control that were based both on the stick of surveillance and uh, heavy-duty policing and the carrot of entertainment. You know, I, I call it being Huxley into the full Orwell. So uh, let's talk about predicting the future, which is hard to do, um, but it's obviously something you think about. Uh, But one of the trickiest things, I think, about predicting the future is that the things that are really going to change, um, they're often like social mores. You know, we think about, oh, the future is going to be about flying cars or spaceships. Maybe. And those things are easy to imagine. But in reality, what has it been? It's been like the role of women or the kinds of societies that we build that are just completely different. Um, I mean, and that kind of stuff was hard to imagine 50 years ago. Yeah. And this is a thing that comes up a lot in the privacy debate. You know, people say I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and like in my, not quite in my living memory, but in my parents' living memory, it was illegal for black people and white people to get married and their children were illegal. Right. It was illegal to be gay. Mm-hmm. It was a felony to be gay. Um, it was illegal to smoke weed, which is very quickly becoming legal. Uh, the, the role of women, as you say, radically transformed. And women who believed that it should be transformed were viewed with, with suspicion and they were ostracized. And the way that we got all this social change was by people being able to choose the time and manner of their disclosure, to be able to find the people around them who might work on this project with them, to gradually 
according to their own view about who they were ready to talk to about their identity and the secrets of it, were able to to widen that circle until we had these social shifts. And, you know, if we say, well, privacy doesn't matter because I don't have anything I do that I can't talk to people about, what we're really saying is that we believe this improbable idea that in 50 years our grandkids will say to us, tell me again, Grandpa, how it was in 2017 all of our social mores had finally uh, reached their pinnacle and we didn't have to change anything. Otherwise, you have to believe that there are people around you that you love who are walking around with a secret in their breast that they Mm -hmm. can't tell you yet, who suffer every day because of it, and whose plight we will look back on as a like a ghastly miscarriage of justice. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have those spaces. And so, you know, this is one of the, the those things that beautifully illustrates the dual nature of technology. Use technology to let us form groups more efficiently, to find people like us more efficiently, and we can have enormous social progress. Use technology to take away our privacy, and you could take social progress and make it something that never happens. What do you like about writing about the future or about an imagined potential kind of future? Why does that appeal to you so much? Well, I feel like a lot of the fights that I have in my activist work are very abstract, but that by telling the stories of people living through the problems of technology that I worry about, what it would mean if strong cryptography was banned, what it would mean if you know, our networks were primarily turned into surveillance tools instead of tools for for helping us improve our lives, that I can take some of that difficult to overcome complexity and abstractness and really flesh it out in a way that people can understand right in their guts instead of just in their heads. And that's a winning combination. And how do you do that in the world that you imagine in in this new book, Walkway? Um, I just want you to talk about that a little bit because these issues of morality and social standards that we've been talking about obviously factor in as well as the big one, uh, wealth inequality. So in Walkaway, you know, the wealth disparity has allowed both the simple economic injustice and the, 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 the falling away of whole generations of potential workers into a kind of like demimond of uh, semi-homelessness and economic precarity and being sucked into these uh, investment bubbles. And so it's creating this alternate society and the alternate society of, of like bohemians and walkaways It's pretty stable until they take a step too far because one of the projects that the super rich are working for, I call them the Zodas, they're they're like after Giganaires and and Heptanaires and and, and whatever, they're they're Zodanaires. So the Zodanaires are working on practical immortality. They're they're trying to get people to figure out how to let them live forever. Which is not so far from the folks in Silicon Valley. It's certainly a project that when you get rich enough, you start thinking about, right? right? Uh, What else can you do with your money? But you have to be around to enjoy it. I mean, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? Yeah, you can't take it with you, so you don't have to go, maybe. So when the scientists who are working on that project realize that their patrons have made them complicit in the speciation of the human race, where the super rich become like infinitely prolonged men as gods, and everyone else becomes a mayfly disappearing in their rearview Mm -hmm. mirror, they steal the secret of immortality, and they they take it to walkaway land with them. And then that triggers the all-out war by the super-rich, whose elite panic at the thought of spending the rest of eternity with us basically means that this, this sideshow can no longer be tolerated, and out come the Hellfire missiles. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Corey Doctorow, author of the new novel, Walk Away. When people read this, is there something that you hope they think about what's happening today? Yeah, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. You know, they, they, the, um, which makes complete sense. Sure, sure, of course. The, you know, optimistic you know, disaster. Yeah, novel. well, so disasters are inevitable, right? Like, even if you have this extremely well-designed, well-put-together civilization, you're still going to have belligerent neighboring states or rising seas or microbes that mutate out of control or, you know, horrible superstorms. And so it's what you do afterwards that decides whether you're living through a disaster or a catastrophe. If you pull together, then that's fine. If you turn on each other, then that's terrible. And, you know, they say that there are two plots, man versus man and man versus nature. And I think that a lot of writers in the pulp tradition, which I'm proud to say I work in as a science fiction writer, they like to have both. You know, the storms come and then civilization collapses. It's a two for one. And um, this gives us this largely false intuition that what people do in times of disasters turn on each other. The reality is that people really rise to the occasion. I was really influenced by this book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell that's all about the the real history of things we remember as these descents into barbarism where, as a historian, she examined these first-person contemporaneous accounts of what people actually experienced during Katrina when they were all penned up in the dome and, and in Haiti after the earthquake. And what she found is that while there were, you know, Blackwater mercenaries sniping at people people who were allegedly looting, what there wasn't any evidence of were like the rapes in the, in the dome that, mm-hmm. that just turned out to be a kind of libel on, on brown and poor people that was both the reason for penning them up and, and then the reason for keeping them penned up. And so what I wanted to, to do was, on the one hand, see what kind of narrative juice could be squeezed out of the idea, not that after a disaster, we turn on each other, but that after a disaster, one of the real problems is figuring out how people that you fundamentally agree with, but can't, or are on the same side as, but can't agree with, how you resolve that. Because that's a way harder problem, and it's a way more dramatic problem, right? Fighting with your enemies is easy. Fighting with your friends is hard. So on the one hand, to see what kind of story you could tell, but on the other hand, to have a story that people can bring to mind easily when things go wrong about how the solution really is in in seeing how they can help out. You know, all the people who have their bug out bags and are ready to go to the hills when things go wrong, those people will not help things get right again. No one, you know, when the, when the power goes out and you run for the hills, I can tell you one thing for sure, you're not going to be one of those people who helps the power come back on. It's interesting. I don't know if this has always been true, but you do see when you watch cable news now ads for... Like, you know, food pouches that you eat when you're like, you know, it's the end times and stuff. And, uh, you know, or when some huge natural uh, catastrophe happens or a or man-made catastrophe, I guess. I don't know if like 30 years ago there, there were those kinds of advertisements. But this does seem to be both, like I was saying, in fiction and in non Something that seems to be on people's minds. Well, it's one thing to like, so I live in Los Angeles, so I have a 50-gallon drum of water behind the house, and we have some flashlights and some spare freeze-dried food, but we have enough for the neighbors, right? And we also have a freezer full of stuff that if things went wrong, we we would fire up the barbecue and we'd feed the neighbors, right? And we'd hope that they'd do the same for us. It's another thing to run for the hills. And I, I think 
30 years ago, we were close enough to the Cold War that there probably were a lot of people with basements full of canned goods. And it's really the sense of what happens when when the lights go out, not whether the lights will go out, that that matters. You know, if you think your neighbor is coming over with a covered dish, then you won't greet them with a shotgun. But if you think your neighbor is coming over with a shotgun, then you might go over and shoot them before they get to your house. And really, that's the... I was reading about the Titanic, and half the seats on those light boats were empty because the people in them were convinced that they started letting the swimmers in, that they'd overwhelm them, and they didn't wow. let anyone in, right? It's, it's really a matter of what your theory of other humans is. And, you know, there's a, it is profoundly statistical illiterate to believe that you and all your friends are reasonably decent people, but 99.9% of people are bastards, right? If that's really the case, then, like, how is it that you got so lucky that you only ever met the people who were reasonable, if flawed human beings, and not the 99.9% of people who are bastards? Really, most of us are and know representative samples of humanity. Cory Doctorow is co-editor of the website Boing Boing and author of the new novel, Walk Away. Cory, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we've got more about Cory Doctorow's books, as well as other coverage of why we're in this moment when dystopian TV shows and literature and movies have caught fire. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Muriel Carricker and Samantha Crozier. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.